Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and on Wednesdays this year I've been doing a regular segment about the Axeman of New Orleans, an unidentified serial killer who operated in the earlier part of the 20th century in Louisiana. And a lot of the general public's understanding of the Axeman case comes to us from a narrative that was created by Robert Talon in his book Ready to Hang, Seven Famous New Orleans Murders, which was published in the 1950s. And for this series, I wanted to pay special effort to Robert Talon's book because his narrative will be heavily disputed by Miriam C. Davis, who is the author of The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, the book that I'm going to read next, and she has made the bold claim that her book is the only true definitive authority on the Axeman case because Robert Talon's book from the title, you can see, Ready to Hang Seven Famous New Orleans Murders, the Axeman is only a single chapter in this book, but it's a rather lengthy chapter, and as you see, is making up the first three um, episodes of the series. And I'd also like to remind you guys that if you want to follow along with all of these true crime discussions, you can like and subscribe. It really helps out the channel. You can also go over to Launchpad 1 and download the audio version of this show for free. And you can even go into the description box and find the link for buymeacoffee.com. This allows you to make a donation or contribution to help support the show. And anybody who makes a contribution will get their shout out on Zodiac Mondays. Yes, every Monday is Zodiac Monday here on Black Box Online Radio. If you have not heard the previous segments, then you can keep listening, that's fine. But I want to fill you in on some things. There has been this unidentified murderer and attempted murderer who has been attacking people in New Orleans starting in 1918. And most of the victims have had some connection to the grocery business. And we've been through the attack on the Maggios, the attack on Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe, the attack on Joe Romero. And lastly... I was talking about the attack on the Cordomiglia family, which is perhaps one of the most famous Axeman attacks, because in the attack on the Cordomiglias, it saw the death of their baby, of their young child. And this is something that is quite different than a lot of the other serial killers out there. They don't always go after children. And we have to remember there's a big competing theory that the Axeman attacks were all unrelated and they were just strung together by the media, by misrepresentations in journalism. And while that is possible, the narrative that Robert Talon has established in this chapter, The Axeman War Wings, is really quite different. It's called The Axeman War Wings because it's almost like he flew in and flew out and really isn't leaving a lot of evidence behind. Almost nothing is stolen. Money is left behind, valuables are left behind, and these crimes appear to be motiveless, other than the fact that many of them work in the grocery store business in that particular uh, profession. However, the attack on the barber, Joe Romero, was one where it seemed almost as if someone was seeing the Axeman in the vicinity of the homes of several different grocers, and then he went on to attack a barber. So that leads us to believe, according to Robert Talon's narrative, that this is a case of mistaken identity. And he didn't say that directly in the book, but I think the insinuation was pretty straightforward. I would like to keep going on page 214. 
but nothing had been solved about the Axeman crimes. It was almost as if the cruel attacks had been committed by a supernatural being, by a fell demon from the hottest hell, as the letter purported to be from the Axeman had put it. Many had been charged and all had been freed. No proof of the criminal's identity existed. With the freeing of the Giordanos, the Axeman returned to the conversation of the Orleanians and briefly to the editorial pages of newspapers. Who was the Axeman? Had there been one Axeman or several? Had each attack been the work of a different person or all one? Then, almost simultaneously with the confession of Rosie Cordamiglia, New Orleans police learned of a strange occurrence in Los Angeles. At first, the news seemed almost unbelievable. Later, they seemed to have been anxious to believe it. December 2, 1920, an Orleanian named Joseph Mumfrey was walking down a Los Angeles business street in the early afternoon. A woman in black and heavily veiled stepped from the doorway of a building and, with a revolver in her hand, and emptied the gun into Joseph Mumfrey. He fell dead on the sunny sidewalk, and the woman stood over him, making no attempt to escape or even to move. Taken to the police station, the woman in black said that her name was Mrs. Esther Albano, and refused to say why she had shot Joseph Mumfrey. Days later, she changed her mind and told the Los Angeles detectives that she was Mrs. Mike Pepitoni, the victim of the last, the, the, sorry, the widow of the victim of the last New Orleans Axeman attack. He was the Axeman, she said. I saw him running from my husband's bedroom. I believe he killed all those people. Immediately, New Orleans police were drawn into a case. They knew a lot about Joseph Mumfrey. He had a criminal record, and he spent much time in prison. Dates were checked carefully. He had been released from a prison term in 1911, just before the slaughters of the Schiambros of Crudy and of Rossetti. And this will lead us back to uh, some theories that involve pre-Axeman attacks, known as the Cleaver attacks. Then he had gone back to jail and been freed only weeks before the Maggio attack, and began. And the next set of crimes began. In lull, in the lull between the end of August of 1918 and March of 1919, he had once more been in jail on a burglary charge, and this was a span of time between the attack on Mrs. Lowe and the others during that period, and the, the next outbreak that began with the Cordomiglia family. It was known that Mumfrey had left New Orleans just after the slaying of Mike Pepitoni. To hear more about the Pepitoni attack, we are going to go to a different section in Robert Talon's book, and it says that there were no more Axeman appearances until October 27th. Early that morning, Mrs. Mike Pepitoni, the wife of a grocer, awoke to hear sounds of a struggle in the room next to her own, where her husband had slept. She reached for the door between the rooms, just in time to see a man disappear into another exit to her husband's room. Mike Pepitoni lay on his bed, covered in blood, blood spattered on the wall, and next to the picture of the virgin above the bed. Mrs. Pepitoni shrieked, and her small children were awakened by their mother's screams. When the police arrived, they found the signatures, a chiseled door panel, there was an axe that lay on the back porch. Pepitoni was dead, and his wife could tell little or nothing. She had seen the man, but her description was no less general than any of the others that they had received. It seemed as hopeless as a, a case as the rest. By now they had a feeling that there was nothing they could do but wait for the axe man to strike again. Would it go on forever? No, it did not. No one knew it then, but it was over. Mike Pepitoni was the last victim. 
Calls continued to reach the police, frightened citizens night after night, but all turned out to be scares and nothing more. Throughout the months that passed, and became it became a year, and a number of arrests were made in vain, New Orleans, New Orleanians began to relax again, and the discussion of the Axeman cases became infrequent. Only the Giordanos languished in the Gretna jail, awaiting their trial, and the attorney that had promised them, or they would face hanging. Then, on December 7th of 1920, Rosie Cordamiglia appeared in the city of the city room of the Times-Picayune and asked to speak to a reporter. Later accounts of her visit were highly dramatic. Rosie was utterly changed, thin and ill, and in black on her face was almost unrecognizable as the pretty young woman a year before. Well, I mean, I think that that is understandable. I mean, her child was murdered by the Axeman, and again, a very, very ruthless thing to do. And then, Rosie Cordomiglia is interviewed by a reporter, and she begins to start screaming, I lied, I lied, I lied. God forgive me, I lied. Everyone in the office is gathered about. This was it. Great sensational copy. Rosie remained on her knees, streaming with tears streaming down her cheeks. I lied. It was not the Giordanos who killed my baby. I did not know who the man was that attacked us. And perhaps you'll remember from the last part that the Giordanos are the people who lived nearby. And there is a major dispute between Rosie Cortemiglia and her husband, who thought that it was not the Giordanos, and Rosie said that it was, but now you see she's recanting that. In um, Frank Giordano's cell, she threw herself against the floor and kissed his feet, crying, Forgive me, forgive me, you are innocent. So I think you can get the idea there that that um, seems to be a less credible uh, statement. But there are a lot of conflicting statements here, and some people perhaps have been through some serious trauma with the events that they've experienced. But also, I want to point out that Robert Talon stitches together a story that seems rather well put together in the majority of the Axeman attacks. There is someone who is chiseling out a door panel and using that as his point of entry. The weapon is practically the same. The ammo is mostly similar, going after people in their homes, and nothing is stolen. The valuables are mostly left behind. So it seems like this is all consistent with a single perpetrator. Bear in mind that men, women, and children, at least one child, have been targeted by the Axeman. So, in the previous segment, if you didn't get a chance to hear that yet, what I hope you will, the Mafia theory has been heavily challenged. There's this idea that these people were attacked because they were targeted by the Sicilian Mafia in New Orleans, and that the Axeman wasn't a cold, methodical, and calculating serial killer. Instead, he was a henchman or hitman for the mob, or um, the mafioso, maybe that's a way of putting it. But that narrative was heavily challenged, saying the mafia would not go after women, let alone a child. And this is just someone who is a twisted and demented maniac. But are you noticing something about the Pepitoni murder? The description, as shared by Talon, is that the wife and widow, Esther of Mike Pepitoni, is saying that she had almost no look at Mumfrey at all. And she, Mumfrey, I mean, 
that he's a suspect in the Axeman case. She had almost no look at the Axeman at all, not really able to provide any details or any features about the Axeman, yet then saying, oh yeah, absolutely, he's the one who did it, and that whole story is fishy. And we're definitely going to find out that there are going to be parts of that narrative that are going to be untrue. We have to remember that there are competing theories. So let's look at some questions that are asked by Robert Talon in the conclusion of his chapter, The Axeman War Wings. Was the Mafia responsible? Joseph Mumfrey was not known to be a member of any such organization, but that in itself doesn't mean anything. Membership was a secret. Yet, as Detective D'Antonio said, the crimes never fitted the Mafia pattern. The Mafia did not attack anyone but Italians, and they never murdered women. Besides, it was thought that the Mafia had passed from New Orleans forever with the apprehension of the kidnappers of little Walter Lamana. Well, um, I mean, again, if these things were happening in secret, how would, how would people truly know if they were there in New Orleans or not? If the Mafia did still exist and the Italians were attacked and they were intended victims, what of Mrs. Harriet Lowe, what of Mrs. Schneider, what of Sarah Lallman, and the others, who were not Italians, yet had also been the Axeman's prey? And that is something that I was thinking as well, like Louis Bessemer would be another example of a victim who wasn't Italian. There are quite a few Axeman victims who are not Italian, and how exactly would this whole Sicilian Mafia thing be working? And some of you guys pointed this out in the comments section, you're saying that well, it seems like somebody's trying to put these people out of business, maybe destroying the competition, or maybe there's some type of nasty exchange that has happened. It could have been trying to extort money and failing. It could be getting access to not only competitive business privileges, but also maybe they're controlling something involving trade. They want to become the number one supplier of this and that. I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm just talking, you know, freely at this point. I mean, that's all pure, pure speculation, but things that I get curious about. However, they bring up a very solid point. If they're not all targeting Italians, what really is the connection? Is this the mafia, or is this somebody who maybe had a grocery store owner as a father, a shopkeeper as a father, and really hated him, maybe a mom-and-pop shop that turned it out to actually be a mom-and-pop cribbo horrors, and I think that um, that narrative also is very plausible. Okay, so let's keep going. It is true that in all of these cases, the exact pattern of the Axeman's technique was not followed. Often, one or more of his habits were omitted. He chose different means of entry, for instance. Did this to prove the assailant was not the same? Oh, did he do this to prove that the assailant was not the same? Now, I said that the Axeman mostly goes into the homes by chiseling out the door panel, but he also entered through the window on at least one occasion. I mean, I think that, as Talon has presented it, and again, obviously, Robert Talon is leaning toward a single Axeman theory. I think that's fairly clear, but as Talon has presented it, that just seems like something that was done for convenience. Just um, as somebody who was reading the book, was this the same murderer that had called? Was the following pattern indicative of the fact that this killer was a homicidal maniac, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of Detective D'Antonio's theorizing? 
adherence to such a pattern is thought to suggest that the insane killer who kills for pleasure and no other motive and i need to throw in a massive interjection there as somebody who talks about serial killers very frequently on black box online radio there are different types of serial killers and some truly kill for pleasure others do not seem to enjoy what they're doing they're very simply just recreating the cycle of the destructive behaviors because they've experienced um, abuse and trauma in their own lives and they're trying to convince themselves that the abusive actions that were done to them were normal and it's all unconscious it's all unconscious they think that um they just are committing these actions because of choice but in reality they're just recreating the magnified forms of abuse that they experienced and i do pay emphasis to that word magnified they are trying to do something more extreme and I mean, they. I think a lot of us do this. It's just not all of us are so dangerous. We want people to experience what we have experienced. And, I mean, like, sometimes that can be happiness. You want to share happiness with people. I mean, we do this, right? Right? Like, you watched a really funny movie and you want to show it to your friends so that they can watch the funny movie, too, and you can laugh, too. It's the same concept, except, oh, these people have felt misery and terror and horror and rejection from society and lack of bonding with their parents. And there is usually some type of violation that has happened in someone's life to become a serial killer. They have been betrayed by someone whom they viewed was a very key component of their existence maybe a teacher usually the parents but it could also be a doctor someone who was supposed to keep them safe but then they didn't feel safe because of this person's treachery wrongdoing the examples i always go to are someone um such as uh, ted bundy perhaps he learned a dark family secret about his mother and his sister paul bernardo yeah, the scarborough rapist also known as one of the ken and barbie killers the other was carla homolka he just learned that his family was lying to him about being adopted and i'm sure you're thinking of some other examples about how uh, somebody can feel betrayed by their parents alan Legere, the canadian serial killer known as the monster of the miramichi he um lost his brother in his um teen years his brother was hit by a truck and his mother said that should have been you that was hit by the truck these are very very devastating events for people in their lives so i really don't know if it's only about sexual thrill i think it's also just about recreating misery and terror and Sometimes there are sexually motivated serial killers, other times there are not. It also must be remembered that most of the victims were like Italian grocers. Did someone hate Italian grocers? Did someone want to kill all the Italian grocers in New Orleans? Well, no, absolutely not. Because, um, as, as we just said, Louis Bessemer was a grocer, but he was not Italian. He was Polish, so I don't think that theory holds too much weight. If this was the case, we come full circle again. What of the others who were not Italian? I mean, yes, yes, I completely agree. Confusion did much harm in all of the cases. Then there were the false accusations of Harriet Lowe against Louis Bessemer and of Rosie Cordomiglia against the Giordanos. There were lots of lies without a doubt. There was fear. Probably some of the victims and their relatives did not tell all they knew, either for fear that the Italian Mafia still existed or they might be further punished, or because they knew that the Mafia existed, and they 
that one of its members would extort reprisals from someone in their family if they talked. All we know is that the Axeman did vanish from New Orleans about the time that Joseph Mumfrey left the city, and that he never returned after Mumfrey was killed. It is extremely doubtful that anyone will know more. The Axeman came and struck and went away. The citizens of New Orleans can only hope that they never hear the sound of the chisel at work on the door panel again. And thus concludes the segment on the Axeman War Wings by Robert Talam. Okay, no one will ever know anymore. It's interesting that he concludes his chapter by saying that because I had the opportunity to correspond with Miriam C. Davis, and I simply just asked her, is there a message you would like to share to the listeners of Black Box Online Radio? And she said, number one, that she thinks that there was an axe man, and that some of the crimes that he committed that have been attributed to him are indeed the same person in her theory. And there are also crimes that the, the Axeman committed that people do not necessarily think were the Axeman. So, I mean, the conventional narrative is a little bit off, I think is a per fair way of interpreting that, because she believes that the early attacks in um, around the beginning of the 1910s, for lack of a better term, were the Axeman. And that some of these Axeman crimes that we've been talking about were the same person, and maybe some of them were different. It would be an example of this, maybe looking at the Zodiac Killer mystery to illustrate. Say, hypothetically, that the Zodiac Killer did not commit the Lake Herman Road murders, he did not commit the Blue Rock Springs shooting, but he did commit the Lake Berryessa stabbing, he did commit the Stein murder, he did commit the abduction of Kathleen Johns, and he did commit the abduction of Donna Last, and that's it. Some of the crimes that have been attributed to him were real, and some were not. Some of the crimes that are potential or possibly attributed to the serial killer are indeed the same person. So, um, that's an interesting theory, but she had the second point that she wanted to share with the listeners of Black Box Online Radio, and this is why I'm really looking forward to beginning her book for next week. I mean, I read some of it last year, but we'll get the chance to go through the thing all in a row. And the second point that she wanted to share was she claims that 100% she can eliminate Joseph Mumfrey as an Axeman suspect. And this whole story about how he um, was targeted by the widow of Mike Pepitoni, that it's just a story. So let's find out about that. I mean, I'm really most curious to see what she can find. And there's a reason why I'm telling you this all straightforwardly and giving this at the beginning. I didn't want to save that to the end because I want you guys to think about it. I'm going to be thinking about it. And this is the question that we're exploring. Is this just that simple that Joseph Mumfrey was the Axeman suspect? I don't know about you guys, but I'm noticing a very similar pattern that is going on with some of these unsolved serial killer mysteries. They have a suspect, and they say that, oh, well, he was in the area at this time. And then, as soon as he's out of the area, the crimes stop. So, I mean, like, you'll find this with Jack the Ripper. You'll find this with the Phantom Killer. You'll find this with the Zodiac Killer and the New Orleans Axeman. 
it's the exact same thing, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, he was in the area, he might have had mafia connections. They're just building all of these things in your imagination and expecting that the reader is going to connect the dots. No, I don't buy any of that stuff. And I pointed out very clearly on the Monday shows, every Monday at Zodiac Monday here on Black Box Online Radio, I pointed out very clearly that Steven Seagal, the actor, also has a timeline that matches up with Zodiac activity. The Zodiac Killer is writing letters in 1970 and 71, and, of course, 69, 70, and 71, to be clear. And then there's a halt in Zodiac activity for the years of 1972 and 73. The Zodiac would then resurface in 1974 with the Exorcist letter. So, Steven Seagal also was out of the country in 1972 and 1973 and returns in 1974. Oh my goodness, his timeline matches up with Zodiac activity. Insufficient evidence. Same with the New Orleans Axeman case and a suspect like Joseph Mumphrey. And that's where I'm going to have to leave it at for now. And you can share anything you want in the comments section down below. My sole concluding message to you is people are going to have to do a lot more than just simply state that someone was in the area and that the crime stopped when they left the area because this happens all the time. If, if I If I hadn't been talking to you guys about true crime over and over again on BBO War, I would probably agree with that. I mean, even just reading that stuff from Robert Halan right there, I was like, oh, wow, that all seems to make sense. Joseph Mumphrey's the axe man. Nope. Insufficient evidence. That method is impractical. If you ever hear somebody trying to say that they've solved a murder mystery by simply just pointing out that, oh, yeah, my suspect lived in that city for two years when the crimes happened, and then as soon as he moved away, the crime stopped. That is not an acceptable method. So says me anyway. Put your ideas in the comment section down below, and I would love to hear and read what you think about the New Orleans Axeman. And in the next episode, we will talk about the letter that was written that brings the Axeman to fame. The one that talks about the Axeman's love of jazz. And I think that... We wouldn't really be discussing the Axeman case without that, that particular letter, but I wanted to really focus that one, or I wanted to use that one almost in as a center point for an episode by itself. So, one more time, please tell me anything that you think about this case, or about the mystery. Does it sound like there's a single Axeman or a group theory going on? Or do you think that the Mafia connection is legitimate? Or do you think that it is just um, a mistake on the part of certain theorists? Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always BlackboxNid88 on Instagram. And I will see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.